You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. As previously mentioned, we're over 50 interviews now. We've interviewed millionaires that have a combined net worth of over $100 million. So we have other interviews in the pipeline and and some great interviews coming up, as well as guest interviews with Robert Kiyosaki, Tom Wilwright, who's Robert Kiyosaki's CPA, as well as Sarah Stanley Fala, who's Thomas Stanley's daughter. And she recently co-authored the book with her father, The Next Millionaire Next Door. And it kind of looks at the research back 20 years and compares the two findings from The Millionaire Next Door, the, you know, obviously an iconic personal financial book, and then these new findings. So excited for those upcoming guest interviews. If you'd like to be on the show, feel free to reach out. We'd love to have you on. We're looking for you know, all different kinds of, of, of millionaires and different kinds of stories. And again, the goal of the podcast is to teach everybody out there and, and to get some of these stories more well-known. Uh, we appreciate it if you leave a, a, a review on iTunes. If you like the show, it helps us grow. It helps us get us out there, helps us teach others and expand. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So on today's show, we have Rick. He lives in Canada. He works in marketing, makes about $100,000 a year and has a current net worth of about $1.1, $1.2 million. He has about 550000 in his house, which is paid off. He's fully debt-free. And he also has about 550000 invested in the markets. And that's split in index funds between the Canadian market, a total international market, and then a U.S. Uh, index fund. And in that, he has about 90% equity and 10% bonds. And so we talk with Rick about his investing approach. We talk to him about the household he grew up in and how he's raising his children and teaching them about investing and, and, and kind of managing their money. And then we also talk to him about advice. He gets some great advice to, to the 30-year-old investor. And, and then lastly, some of his mistakes. He reveals that he invested in a Ponzi scheme. He tried some venture capital investing. And he thinks he spent too much on a car, too. And so a really good uh, overall interview with Rick. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with him. And the show, we've got Rick. Rick, do you want to just give us a little background on what you're doing now? Sure, sure. Uh, my name is Rick. I'm in Canada. Uh, I'm a marketing manager at a telecommunications company. I've got a wife of 15 years and two little boys, so it's a pretty average average family, average life. And have you always done that, or did you come from a different background? No, I, I actually started, I went to school for computer information systems, so I actually uh, entered this company. I've, I've been with the company for 15 years, and I started as a programmer, so I've been a programmer. I moved into uh kind of telephone system design and then moved into a sales role and then uh, that sales role led me into a marketing role so i've kind of had a little bit of an interesting past in the communications business and you said you've been with that company the whole time since college yeah yeah since college i had a, a work term with this company and then i went back and finished up college and i was fortunate enough to get back on with the company and it's it's a really good company there's lots of longevity lots of uh lots of long-term employees and uh, i'm hoping to be one of them by the time i'm done my career Cool. And what is your net worth today? So my net worth is sitting at about $1.1 million. And how is that broken up? So that's broken up in, um, I have, it, it's three three big sections, I guess. The house being the biggest one. Uh, I have a paid for house. So we're, uh, we're totally debt free, uh, became debt free in February of 20, 
13. So the house is worth about 550,000 uh, is my best guess. And then I have the, the other two big ones are the investment dollars. So I have a really good company pension of about 240,000 in there. And then I have my own personal investment account and there's about 331 in there. So that, that's, that's roughly the, the 1.1 million. Awesome. And was paying off the house, uh, was that done early or was that part of the goal to try to kind of get some of this accelerated? Or how did you come to arrive it was, at that? I, I, didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't really have a grand scheme or a big plan. Um, I'd, you know, I'd never, never really liked debt. I'd always paid off, you know, if I had a car loan or something, I'd always paid off early. So the house was paid off in probably, uh, actually almost exactly 10 years uh, since the first day my wife and I got a mortgage and we'd ended up, uh, we were very fortunate to come into, um, I guess it was a cheap housing market when we first got married. And then we switched houses twice since then. And we've been, been able to ride a, a nice wave into the house we have now. So we got in when it was cheap. So it, like I said, it took about 10 years. Um, and that was really the only goal I had. I didn't, I wasn't even sure what I was going to do after we paid off the house. I just knew that I wanted to pay off the house and I liked this idea of being debt free. So that's, that's really how, how that got started. So you said you're debt free in, in 2013, right? Yeah, yeah. And and did you have besides your your primary house? Did you have did you have any other sort of debt, card debt, credit card, any anything else? No, no. We've been pretty good with credit cards. I pay those off. Actually, paid off every two weeks because that lines up with my pay schedule. So we keep uh, zero credit card debt. Um, I had we had car loans in the beginning, very small loans. Like I said, we paid those off. So so really, the the only debt we actually had for the longest time was just the house. And all our extra money went to went to paying off the house instead of, of uh, you know investing. So all the extra money went to pay off that mortgage. So I want to dive into your market investments here. Uh, sure. You have about five hundred fifty thousand, give or take, in the market. Uh, yeah. How's that invested? So the that one's split up. Um, the company pension makes up about forty two percent of my of my investments, and that's essentially an index you know, an index fund kind of scenario there. So the, the company, uh, you know, looks after that portion. And 50, well, I guess the other 58% is in my personal investments. And I keep a very simple portfolio. It's in uh, TD Waterhouse E-Series index funds. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with those at all. You've heard of them before? I, I have not. Okay. They're, 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 the, they're Canada's uh, favorite index funds as far as I was able to find. Um, everyone really likes them. They're fairly low cost. Uh, you just need a TD Waterhouse to get them. So I keep a fairly even split of 30% Canadian equity, 30% US equity, and then 30% international equity, and then 10% in Canadian bonds. So it's really a 90% equity and a 10% bond split for, right. for my portfolio. What's kind of been the history, the comparison between the Canadian market and the US market? Which ones have those performed relative? The U.S. has been incredible. Uh, you know, when I want to log into my dashboard, the U.S. has consistently, and, and just for time scale, um, I've been investing in these since, well, since we we're debt-free, so the middle of 2013. The, the U.S. has always been, you know, 20% in, in our rate of return. It's just been unbelievable. So, but, but I've, I've held off on, you know, moving more into the U.S. just because, you know, I made my, my investment plan of my 30-30-30-10, and, and I'm sticking with that. But yeah, the U.S. one has been incredible. Gotcha. And then, and international Canada. I know the U.S. has beat the the overall international fund. Which ones? Which one's been better, the Canadian fund or the international? 
Uh, best recollection, I think the like the international has gone up and down quite a bit. I think the Canadian fund has steadily outperformed it as as far as I can recall. Gotcha. But so I, I know that US one. Sorry, I was going to say I know that US one just uh, jumps out at me because that one's always it's it's hard yeah. to miss. <laughs> yeah, especially the last three or four years, right? The US has, it, has completely crushed it. So yeah. So t- how did you kind of decide this is the allocation you want? Before we started on the call, you said you, you had a kind of a behavior investing strategy. Talk a little bit about how you got here and, and got to this strategy. So this one, it's a fairly simple answer. Um, there's a website called Canadian Couch Potato and CanadianCouchPotato.com and they have these model portfolios. And I was like, like when I when I started this, you know, I would probably researching for two or three years before I actually uh, became debt free and started investing. So I'd put a, a whole bunch of time into research and I came across this site and they had these model portfolios and they had, you know, do you want, you know, here, here's where you'd start if you had this much money, you know, they talked about um, what used to be ING Direct, which is now Tangerine. They talked about these TDE series funds. They talked about ETFs through Questrade and those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, for the, for the money I had, which was zero at the time to invest, I just really liked the, um, the idea and the longevity of the TDE series funds. So it really, you know, their model portfolio said, if you're this age, you know, you could probably handle more equity. And then uh, from there, I built my the split I currently have today. So it's uh, it was a whole bunch of research, whole bunch of whole bunch of learning and reading, a lot of form posting on uh, Canadian money forums. And then I I just, you know, used used a mix between the couch potato model portfolio for TDE series funds and what I thought fit my age for uh, for the split. So I want to ask, just kind of while we're talking about your background here, what was the household like that you grew up in? Were your parents interested in personal finance? Is that something that they taught you? And, and then the flip side of that is you, you mentioned you have a couple of kids. How, how have you kind of taken on teaching them personal finance and teaching them about how to invest and manage money? Yeah, uh, I really like that question. I, I think that's pretty cool. So the because it is, for me, it's pretty cool anyway, because I think it's two totally different households. So growing up, uh, my dad was uh, was an RCMP officer, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and you know we we never went without. You know we were we were comfortable, but we weren't uh, you know extremely wealthy by by any means. And it was, you know, money really wasn't talked about a lot. Um, you know we we didn't live an extravagant lifestyle, but it was just never really mentioned. So you know I really didn't build a lot of money skills until I was out on my own in college and even, you know, getting out of college and starting at, at the uh, communications company, I really didn't build any big financial skills, you know, but I didn't have any bad habits either. So it's, you contrast that to my household now with my little, little guys and my wife and, uh, you know, they, I, I don't think they're old enough to really grasp, you know, what, what being debt free is and all that kind of stuff. But, I'm trying to really instill the the value of money in them. And I know that is something I got from my parents because, you know, we didn't spend money easily. So I'm really trying to instill instill value and and those kinds of, of things into their minds. So when they do get to be teenagers and they're, you know, starting to look at buying cars and, you know, all all that kind of fun stuff that happens when you're a teenager, that they can really they can really weigh the the you know the the literal cost and the you know the the benefits of spending that money. So I'm I'm hoping to raise them you know with a with a good mindset of 
you know, to, to make sure that, that they're making good decisions with, uh, with the money they get and, and, you know, getting it the best way they can. So I think they're two, I think they're two fairly, fairly different households. I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'll have lots of discussions with, uh, with my guys about, about money, probably a lot more than I had with, with my parents. So that's, that's the plan anyway. What is your, your take on generational wealth? And do you plan to, to leave some behind and, and do you talk to your, to your kids about that? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I don't know if I have a really concrete answer for that. I know, you know, based on a lot of the reading, um, a lot of people are, you know, you look at like, like the Warren Buffetts. Uh, there's a quote of his I really like where he wants to leave his kids enough money to do anything, but not enough money to do nothing. So there, there's always that balance where, you know, some of the, you know, bringing it down to, you know, yours and my level, you know, I don't know for, if you guys are Warren Buffett level, but I know I'm not, but it's, I, I wouldn't mind leaving them, um, you know, leaving them some some money to get them started. But I just I don't know how much that's going to be because I don't want to, you know, when when I'm done with the money and and I you know shuffle off this earth, I don't want to leave them so much that they can just you know kind of kick up and and you know not do anything. I want them to to build a life for themselves. I also don't want them to count on that money either. I'd like them to build something of their own that they can be proud of. And build their own wealth, and then uh, you know when I'm done with mine, you know whatever they get, whatever I have left over is uh, it's it's not something they're banking on, or not something that will completely you know completely change their lives. So I, I don't know if that's a really good answer. Uh, I have a lot of time to think about that, but uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll take some brain power once I get around to that uh, to that stage. Yeah, what uh, what's been your take on on a financial advisor? Have you ever investigated using one? Do you currently use one, and and would you potentially in the future, if your net worth continued to to grow and skyrocket? I have looked at them um, when we were first exploring our you know our options about what to do with our investment money. We we visited one, and we didn't have the you know the level of uh, of money to invest that this uh, advisor you know would have taken us on for. I did look at it, um, you know, after after a bunch of reading, I, I decided I could do it on my own. And one of the big reasons was I you know I'm a nerd. I like uh, I like spreadsheets. I like work with numbers. So that aspect of being able to manage it was was something I didn't mind doing because there is a time investment involved, and it was also a good way that I found to keep the costs low. I mean, I'm sure we're all familiar with the, uh, you know, managed expense ratio. And, and I found that I could, you know, I was able to do it myself, willing to do it myself, and I could keep costs low. So honestly, that that's my long-term plan. I don't think I would ever go to an advisor knowing what I know now, um, if I can keep up, you know, what I've been doing as my wealth grows and then even as I come to the point where I want to start using that wealth for income, I'm still fairly confident I can do it myself. So I don't foresee the need for an advisor for me. Uh, that isn't to say, you know, that uh, advisors are, are bad. I know sometimes they get a lot of a lot of bad reputation there. But, you know, for, for me, it's uh, I just don't know if it's something I need. Do you have a target net worth that you're yeah. trying to achieve or a, an amount of passive income or retirement income that you plan to live off in the future? I do. Uh, it's uh, my friend and I always joke, you know, because the, the number, you know, we'll, we'll say whatever the number is, it's always 10 years away. It's always 10 years away. You know, two years ago was 10 years away. Today, it's still 10 years away. So it's it's funny because the, the number I had initially set out for, and I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the uh, concept of the safe withdrawal rate of 4%. So, you know, they're, they're the 
common concept is if you were to take 4% of your investments, that should cover your expenses and then you're essentially financially independent. So for for me, that number is probably about $1.2 million, between $1 and $1.2 million in investments. So if I can take 4% out of that, I can cover my expenses and then I'm financially independent. So I, I would consider you know 1.2 the minimum. Um, I would realistically like 1.5 or 1.6 before I'd really start looking at leaving my you know my my very good job here to uh, to become financially independent and to do you know to pursue something else. Do you ever worry at, at 1.2 that maybe the market would tank and you'd lose a lot of your income and, and either have to go back to work or you wouldn't have enough? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a. Uh, that's a that's a really obvious thing that that a lot of people wonder, because it's it's a reality. Um, I've been investing since 2013, and I haven't gone through any kind of market correction or rationalization, uh, any any kind of major one anyway. So, yes, that that that's definitely something to to uh, keep in mind and be concerned enough about to have a plan of action. And I know there there are a bunch of strategies out there, you know, about keeping 18% of your investments in cash. So, what? Sorry, 12%. Because what that'll really give you is a cash reserve that you pull from. And then if the markets are down, you can just leave your money alone. You don't have to pull money out of the markets. You just reserve. You rely on your cash reserve. And uh, you know, typically, historically speaking. Uh, corrections can have or corrections take about two or three years to recover. So, there are a bunch of different strategies. Um, bunch they're all conceptual right now. Um, I, I also realized too that, you know, I, I I hope to. So I'm I'm 37 right now. I hope to you know have uh, have the luxury of looking at leaving my job maybe when I'm 50 and I'll still be fairly young and. And I, you know, I imagine I'm going to have some sort of other income. I have a lot of interests. My wife has a home-based business that she's just starting up. So there's always that aspect too. I probably won't have to rely 100% on my investment income for our expenses. So I'm hoping between some sort of reasonable strategy, uh, maybe it's a cash reserve plus whatever kind of side income we have from our hobbies, uh, I'm hoping that'll help us weather any kind of storm. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you, you're 37. You started investing, uh, what, five or so years ago? Yep, yeah, about did five you, years ago. Did you invest in the markets before that time, or is that kind of just when you you started with this investing strategy, or or when did when did you really start investing in the markets? I'd messed around a little bit with uh, individual stocks. You know, I had a uh, an RBC direct investing account, and I I dabbled. I bought you know Bombardier shares and did a little bit of that kind of trading, uh, just. You know, just because I wanted to see what it was like. Nothing really serious, though. This really 2013 is when I really got serious about investing and came up with a, a concrete plan with you know a long-term view of things. So yeah, it's really only been in the last last five years that it's that it's gotten serious. Well, it's a good time to jump in, right? The last five years have done well. How come you <laughs> decided that real estate wasn't part of your your plan? Well, it's 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 funny you should ask that because uh, it's probably where most people look to go for investments and I did the same thing. Our very first house had a rental suite in the basement. That was something we really wanted. And we were very fortunate we had great renters. Uh, the renter, you know, paid 80% of our mortgage, 90% of our mortgage payment, whatever it was. And a lot of the reading, you know, while we were paying off the mortgage and as as I was getting educated, I was really attracted to you know, they having your your little green employees going out to the to the markets and making money and, and multiplying in a very passive way. 
So I like the idea of of the passive uh, investment growth rather than, you know, an active, you know, being a landlord, doing that kind of stuff in the markets. And the, the other biggest reason was I didn't want to go into debt to buy real estate. And I didn't want to be leveraged, you know, to, to try and generate cash flow that way. So I'm, I'm not writing it off. I think in the future, if I did want to pay cash for a house or a rental property, I would look at it then. But I honestly don't think I'd look at it until I could, you know, pay cash for that asset and then and then generate cash flow that way. So it's, you know, I'm not saying never. It's just uh, just not right now. Sure. So I want to go into, into mistakes. We've all made, of course, plenty of financial mistakes or things we wish we could have done better. What, what are some of the mistakes that you've made? <laughs> I like to call it stupid tax. I don't know if you guys have heard that, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've had my fair share of that. Um, probably my favorite one. Uh, it's it's a good lesson, and if it's too good, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. I uh, invested in a Ponzi scheme once. That was that was fun. I got in at the ground level. I actually didn't end up losing money. Uh, it just I'm ashamed that I didn't see that it was a Ponzi scheme early on. Yeah, you know, by the time I saw it was a Ponzi scheme, I was able to pull my money out and and get out of it. But uh, yeah, that's a big one. It was just you know one of those one of those things. Too good to be true. So that was. Uh, you know, due diligence is a big lesson on that one. Um, some of the other, you know, more of the daily mistakes were, you know, I I wouldn't typically buy quality items. I'd go for the the cheapest item I could find, whether it was a computer or you know, or a car or something like that. And I ended up there. There's a photographer by the name of Ken Rockwell. I used to read a lot of his blog, and he has this concept of buying something twice. He said, if you buy something cheap or if you don't buy the thing that's really going to serve your needs, you're going to end up buying it twice because you're going to buy the thing that doesn't work. You're going to realize it doesn't work. Then you're going to go buy the thing you actually wanted or the thing you actually should have gotten. So, you know, a lot of mistakes were not realizing where I should spend the extra and buy quality for for longevity. You know, I I paid too much for cars a couple of times. Um, One of the biggest ones, though, uh, you know, that I think the listeners might want to take away, too, is... And this is something I still have to watch myself on. Being too focused on paying off debt and increasing that savings rate and increasing the investments. And, and by that, I mean, it, it, it took up too much of my head space and possibly even took me you know, past the line of, of frugal into uh, you know, depriving myself of, of some enjoyment. So that's one of the mistakes I think I made. I just I gave it too much headspace, too much mental time when I could have been focusing on on something a little more enjoyable or, or something a little more meaningful. Though those are some of the big ones, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are great. I, we haven't had somebody who's who's, I guess, recognized that they had invested in in what potentially became a Ponzi scheme. Did that ever unfold, and and you were able to see the 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 aftermath of that? No, it, it wasn't. Uh, you know, it wasn't Bernie Madoff level stuff. It was just you know something. Uh, some some guy that my brother in law knew in his hometown. He's he's showing me checks of like he's getting five or six thousand bucks from this investment firm, and he says, you know what? I, I just gave him like a thousand bucks, and I'm getting these checks, and you know, and I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And it's it carries a lot of weight when you know the person. Mm-hmm. I'm going, well, I, you know, I, I have I have a thousand dollars. Let me try that. So I, I did that too, and. Like I said, I didn't do any due diligence, and things just started smelling funny. You know, it was you hear I was on their their forums lots, and people are having trouble getting their money out, and they're really starting to raise questions, and and just the rate of growth was just not realistic after a short time, and that's when I quickly realized I thought, oh dear, <laughs> I've heard of this before. <laughs> yeah, 
So, what... so it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't explode. It didn't explode in a spectacular fashion. I, I think I was able to, to recognize it. And it, it more imploded. I think everyone just kind of jumped ship once they realized what was going on. I see. What, what advice would you give to, to the 30-year-old or maybe the, even the 25-year-old that just starting their career about investing or about life or about you know, you know, happiness in terms of you know, financial means, like you said, one of your mistakes was, was depriving yourself of some enjoyment. What advice would you give them? Um, I, I think really the, the biggest message, if there was only going to be one thing, it's you know, getting debt-free or controlling your debt as much as humanly possible. I know we all have to you know, probably take debt to, to get a house or something like that, but you know, watching your debt is, is probably one of the biggest things. Uh, I think the earlier a person can do that, the better they can set themselves up for the future. Uh, that's probably the, the single biggest thing. Um, I, would, I would recommend living simply and, and finding a partner, you know, whether it's a spouse or whatever, a common law person, finding someone who shares those values of living simple uh, because you know if 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 you're not living in harmony that way, it's it's just gonna just gonna be a mess for your relationship. So really living simple, keeping your expenses down, controlling your costs, you know, avoiding that lifestyle inflation. So if you get a raise at work, you know, don't go on and increase your expenses as much as that raise because you're you're really not getting yourself anywhere. So it's uh, it still goes along the line of you know you still have to have fun. You have to know what's important to you. Everyone likes their hobbies, um, so you you know you don't want to deprive yourself as well. You know you have to have to find that balance, and it takes some trial and error. But uh, you know again, you know you you want to you want to control your debt. Um, you want to use your you know your younger years to really build up your skills, build up your career capital. I think that's a Cal Newport term. Build your career capital so you can provide value to an employer. And you can you can make more money, and then that gives you more money to to invest or to pay off your debt or to whatever whatever is important to you to save up for a vacation, anything like that. And and I know that you know being debt free. Um, I think Dave Ramsey had a, had a good saying where he said, you know, when when the house is paid off, the, even the grass in the backyard feels different. And it's uh, I, I really just I really just can't hit that button enough. It's uh, that's one of the biggest things I'd probably tell anyone in their twenties or thirties is that'd be a an attainable, it's it's an attainable goal, and I think it's something worthwhile going for, and that that of course ripples out. You know, it it makes you happier. It'll make you less stressed. Uh, all that kind of stuff. So it's just pays dividends. What what has been your savings rate over the years? Um, that one is if I include everything that I save, including my company pension, everything like that, I'm pushing into the seventy percent mark. So it's uh, it's been significantly high in the last few years since we paid off the mortgage, because we we live on you know we we still live like I'm making you know sixty thousand dollars a year. So I, I make more than that now, but we live our expenses are still roughly what they were when I first started my career. So you know that that savings rate just goes up. So every time you know if there's a raise or if I get a bonus, I'm lucky enough to get that then all that just compounds into our savings rate. So, yeah, we usually sit between 65-70%. How much do you spend a year? Do you know? Yes, yes. It. Uh, I, I have a rolling average. My average is about, well, it's between forty dollars and $45,000 a year uh, is what we've been spending since I've been tracking, really since we, we started investing. 
And, you know, some, I know one year we, we had like $35,000 and then I had to replace my car a couple of years ago. So that one ended up being like a $55,000 a year. But on the average, we're, we're really sitting around that forty to $45,000 uh, Canadian, obviously, per year, which, which I think is, it's, it's pretty reasonable. Um, you know, I, I, again, I don't think that my wife and I feel deprived. I think we have a, you know, we have a really nice house. We've, we've got all the, all the, all the toys to entertain us. Uh, you know, I don't think we're, we're lacking in that respect, but we're not uh, just, we're just conscious not to overdo it either. So just so our listeners know, uh, it's end of September here, 40,000 Canadian dollars, about 31,000 US dollars. So Rick, I just want to jump into some rapid fire questions with you here uh, before sure. we close. So most expensive pair of jeans or pants that you've ever purchased? Uh, you know what? I think I actually paid 70 bucks for a pair of jeans back in my high school days. Okay. Most expensive shoes? Shoes, uh, probably my work shoes. I know I have uh, spent about 120 bucks on a quality pair of uh, of nice business shoes. Yeah. Okay. Most expensive car? Car. That uh, would probably be our $30,000 Hyundai Santa Fe. That's one of those cars I mentioned before that we maybe paid a little too much for. <laughs> Most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Um, for just me and my wife or like if, if I bought friends supper? Yeah, let's just say the most expensive ever. If that was a group or just ever, I, I think I, I think I spent over a hundred bucks when I uh, when I took some of my relatives out. Okay, uh, what item or items or experiences are, are worth spending more money on to you? To me, um, anything to do you know with, with my family. Obviously, I think that that's a given. So any kind of trip with the kids, whether it's a a quick car ride a couple hours away to stay in a hotel and go to a water slide. Or if it's you know flying on a plane down to Arizona to to visit the in-laws or something like that. So so really you know some experiences, anything that gives me experiences. Okay. And what's not worth the money? What do you what do you kind of cheaper on? Uh, my wife will be the first uh, to tell you this one. I don't pay enough attention to my uh, my attire, my clothes. <laughs> so <laughs> fashion is something I don't put a lot of value into. I think uh, so all I, our wives, I think Rick, all of our <laughs> wives would tell us that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's your, your high school and college GPA, if you can remember? Oh, boy. Uh, high school, I, I was over 80%. And then college, uh, I think I rounded out just over 85% when I got everything done. So okay. nothing crazy. Uh, you know, honor roll, I guess, but uh, I'm not a wizard either. Okay. And we briefly discussed the answer to this question, but what, what do you think your predicted retirement age and net worth at retirement will be? Um, based on, you know, my spreadsheeting again, cause I'm a nerd, uh, I could really, if I really, really, really wanted to pull the plug early, I could probably do it in about nine years. Realistically speaking, because my kids are still young, they'll be going, they'll be, they'll be done high school and starting college or university. I'm thinking about 50 years old and I should be sitting around that, you know, that 1.6 to, to $1.8 million mark by the time I'm 50. Okay. And uh, what was your, how much did you make your first job out of college? First of all, about a college, uh, Jeepers, I have that spreadsheet here. I think it was something like $42,000 a year. And, and that was at the company I'm currently employed with. Okay. And then similar to, to income here, range of income through your working life. Um, it's steadily gone up again. I'm, it's a very good company I'm working for. I've been able to, you know, get a few different jobs. So it's steadily gone up. Um, the range is, you know, the 42 when I started to what I can't remember what I made last year. I think 102 is my base now. So it's a, it's a pretty good range. So you've been there for how many years? 
15. And, and I'm just curious, you know, especially with, with the more the millennial generation, people are more likely to move around and to jump from position to position and, and you know, whatever else. How, how come you stayed and, and why have you chosen to do that? And obviously you're happy you did, but mm-hmm. how come you decided to stay there instead of taking a different opportunity? In, in the city I live in here, um, you know, there are, obviously there are lots of jobs to choose from. It's... It's one of the. I, I honestly think it's one of the few companies, possibly in in North America, that you know that I'd be fortunate enough to have this kind of longevity with. I think these these companies are few and far between. Um, but I, I think the biggest reason is you know it's if you look at my career path, like I said, I started as a programmer. You know, guy. Uh, you know, guy sitting behind a keyboard. You know, slinging code for our our IVR, a call system, and now I'm you know a marketing manager looking after our business communications products. I, I've had different careers inside of one company, and I think that's really what's kept it fresh. Because you know, if if I if I feel like I'm getting stale or I start getting bored, I'm going to start looking around. And I am just incredibly lucky that I can look around inside the company I'm already employed with, so I can leverage the relationships I've built, the reputation I've built, and and I can turn that into new opportunities, both for me to gain skills and to provide value to the company. So it's. You know, it's the the skills development. It's the the career experience. Um, I mean, if you'd asked me 15 years ago if I thought I'd be in marketing, and I said, "No, you're crazy. That's I'm not prepared for that." Um, and then, of course, the income. Right? You know, I've you know I've uh, almost uh, almost tripled my income really from when I first started. Awesome, awesome, good for you. So, Rick, any uh, last advice here for 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 any of our listeners before we let you go? Um, I, I think probably one of the biggest things is. Uh, I am. I'm an average person. Uh, I have a very average household. I'm probably a very boring person. I uh, keep a simple life. So, I mean, if if someone's listening to this and, and they're younger, they're older, whatever age, you know, it's uh, it's it's possible to to become debt free, and it's it doesn't have to be complicated to you know to work towards becoming financially independent and retire early if that's what you're after. So it's uh, you know it's really if I can do it, anyone can do it. Um, and like I said. I don't know if I did say this, uh, when our first child was born 10 years ago, my wife decided to stay at home. And again, we were, we set ourselves up financially to be able to make that decision. And, you know, so if I can do it on a single income and I re- I recognize uh, my income, I think is a little higher than the average household income, but, uh, you know, if we can do it on, you know, between 40 and a hundred thousand dollars a year over 15 years, it's, uh, I think there's, uh, any, anyone can do it if they really want to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And and thanks for sharing that message. You know, I think that's the goal of the show is to show that anybody can do it, you know, whether you make a lot or a little, you know, if you're diligent and, and, uh, you know, anybody can get there, anybody can, can reach millionaire status. So Rick with a net worth of 1.2, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you guys. Really, really fun. Thanks Rick. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the millionaires unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.